powerful political people are postulating nuclear power. But one thing that tends to be overlooked when we talk about nuclear energy is that damned issue of waste. Now, just last month, the plan to build a national nuclear waste facility uh, near Kimber in regional South Australia was scrapped, making it the third such plan to get the axe. So right now, our nuclear waste is uh, scattered throughout the country and thanks to AUKUS, we could soon be dealing with a lot more of it. Now, so what hope is there for a national facility to manage all the waste? Now, to discuss this, we're joined by my old friend Ian Lowe. Ian was my CEO when I was chairing the Commission for the Future some decades ago. These days, he's Emeritus Professor at the School of Natural Sciences at Griffith and Dr Jesse Jessica Irwin, a postdoctoral research fellow at the ANU's Centre for Environmental History. I welcome you both. Jess, to you first, can you run us through the, uh, the story of what happened at Kimber? Thank you for having me, Philip. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. So the issue with Kimber was that, you know, the Australian government decided they wanted a national waste repository to store their nuclear waste. And they found several sites around South Australia that they thought would be suitable. And they came down to Wallabadina and the Flinders Ranges. But in order to try and increase the number of places that they might be able to store nuclear waste, especially as Wallabadina was proving uh, especially unpopular with traditional owners, there was an amendment added to the site nomination guidelines uh, by the coalition government um, brought forward by Matt Canavan, which allowed the nomination of private properties to waste repositories, uh, which is how we got these sites near Kimber being put forward uh, for the waste repository. So in the end, we had this, uh, this 160 hectare property put on the table by its owner, um, and as a result, ballots were taken at both Walla, Bedina and Kimba uh, to see whether the communities supported uh, the repository of waste. And obviously, these were going to be programs that uh, the government also promised development to the area and jobs and growth um, as that kind of rhetoric you kind of hear around these sorts of things. Uh, but Wallabadina uh, ended up being scrapped as an idea because of the fact that the community was really, really not supportive, uh, whereas Kimba ended up with a very kind of slim majority supporting that. Were uh, the, were the, the, case, tra were the oh, yeah. traditional owners uh, locked out of the consultation process? Well, yes, that's a really interesting part of the story is that Basically, the ballot process relied upon only ratepayers being allowed to respond. So traditional owners, the, uh, many of the Bangla people, noted that they were locked out of this process by virtue of not falling within that. And they put together their own community ballot, which overwhelmingly rejected this uh, this uh, waste repository uh, on their traditional lands. So it's been incorrectly assumed that the ruling rested on native title, but it didn't. Yeah, so native title was definitely brought up during the ruling. Uh, I spent many, many hours poring over uh, Justice Charlesworth's judgment and native title was definitely mentioned. But it actually came down to what Justice Charlesworth articulated as apprehended bias on part of Minister Keith Pitt, which basically meant 
that she ruled that the minister had demonstrated that his mind was foreclosed on the idea of the nuclear uh, waste repository being placed at Kimber. It didn't matter that there was still some consultation to go ahead and therefore due process to follow, which included potentially doing um, some heritage reports. Basically, Keith Pitt had demonstrated that regardless of what the outcome of those reports would be, that he had promised development to this area and that Kimber would go ahead. Jess, before I invite Ian to uh, to make his contribution, I think I'd like you to briefly remind the listener about the previous chapters in South Australia's troubled nuclear history. Yeah, so actually South Australia's nuclear history goes way back to the beginning of the 20th century with Antarctic explorer Douglas Mawson working in the geology department of the University of Adelaide and looking for radioactive minerals in the Flinders Ranges. And kind of since then, South Australia has been plagued by uranium mining, nuclear weapons testing, as we know, during the 1950s at Maralinga and Emu Field, associated waste dumps, especially um, those that have been proposed in kind of the late 20th century. And all through this, uh, there has been this sense that South Australia has kind of become the nuclear state. In the 1950s and 60s, not only were there nine inland nuclear weapons tests, but there were hundreds of minor tests, which involved uh, the dropping and burning um, of plutonium to see what would happen to weapons. Then in the 1970s, you have uh, the discovery of the, the big uranium uh, deposit at Olympic Dam and, and the contestations over that. And since then, subsequent uh, attempts to expand uh, Olympic Dam as well as in the 1990s into the 2000s, this question of whether nuclear waste should be deposited in South Australia. And all along that, you will have this kind of deep history as well, especially of traditional owners being incredibly resistant to a lot of these impositions on their land. But not necessarily resistant to radiation exposure. Enter. Ian Lowe. Ian, welcome back. You wrote a, a piece for the conversation that the Kimber plan was, quote, doomed from the start. What made you say that? Well, it was the model that uh, had been tried and failed 20 years earlier in South Australia and 10 years earlier in the Northern Territory of the national government hitting on, on a site and uh, then trying to defend it against uh, local communities. And I wrote in the piece in the conversation that this decide and defend model has not worked anywhere in the world. The UK and the USA have tried it and still decades later don't have uh, any agreed site to store their radioactive waste. So uh, like Australia, uh, they are piling up radioactive waste and each government kicks the can down the road and uh, there is no end in sight to the seemingly intractable problem of um, governments being unable to persuade reluctant communities to accept radioactive waste. So we're talking about debates which have been going on for more than 40 years, aren't we, Ian? We are indeed. And uh, uh, ever, ever since the uh, uh, prototype research reactor was established at Lucas Heights in the 1950s, We've been producing radioactive waste without any uh, long-term plan for its management. And uh, the Flowers report in the UK nearly 50 years ago said that it was irresponsible to be building nuclear reactors until we had 
a coherent and defensible plan for managing the waste that they produce. Now, Jess, let's do a stock take. How much nuclear waste do we actually have in Australia at the moment and what kind of waste is it? So in terms of the amount, it, it's often kind of difficult to decipher because the government inventories often take into account what they call legacy waste, which is that which we've produced, as well as projected waste. But as, as the government's current inventory goes, it's estimated that we have about 2,000 cubic metres of intermediate level waste, uh, which would include me, uh waste from medicines, so from radiopharmaceutical production, as well as from the operation of the Opal reactor that is, is currently at Lucas Heights. But on top of that, we, overha- we have nearly 2,500 uh, cubic metres of low-level waste, uh, which is that kind of seemingly mundane waste that is produced as a result of medicine, contaminated gloves and gowns and bedding and paper and filters that's produced as a process uh, through uh, using uh, medicine. And this makes up 92% of our waste. But it also includes things such as uh, smoke detectors. The other day, I went to check my smoke detector and it is an, an old one that has radioactive materials in it. And this is waste that emits radiation at levels which can generally... Uh, be managed with minimal shielding uh, during handling, transport and storage, but which still needs to be um, handled with considerable care. And ANSTO at the moment is actually predicting that we are increasing our solid intermediate level waste by 3.5 cubic metres every year. And that's, you know, without discussing things such as AUKUS and other issues that are going to increase our nuclear waste. Okay, we'll come to AUKUS a little later, but uh, where is the waste, or most of it, currently uh, stored? So the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation, which is Commonwealth-run, currently manages about 45% of the waste in Australia. So there's a lot of waste stored at Lucas Heights, but it's all over Australia. It's estimated to be in approximately 100 locations across the country, uh, including in universities, um, university laboratories, you know, with private companies, local and state governments, hospitals, uh, all sorts of places, um, including mines as well. Now, Jess, uh, why do we need a national facility? Well, kind of historically, the arguments for a national waste facility have really focused around that idea of centralised control, the idea that by having all the waste in one place, uh, generally administered or thought to be administered by the Commonwealth, it would try and reduce any issues of mismanagement by having so many smaller repositories. And I think earlier this year, uh, with the scare over the the capsule in WA when this eight millimeter radioactive capsule went missing, and it, you know we were all told if you see it, don't touch it. Is this idea that by centralizing this waste, we might be able to try and reduce some of this some of these issues with management? But also there have been arguments around um, cost cutting. Uh, and in 1996, uh, a select committee actually handed down a report to the Fraser government that also noted that having a big centralised facility might actually help try and allay some of the public fears surrounding radioactivity. So those are some of the kind of historic arguments for National Waste Repository. Okay, Ian, tell me about uh, the AUKUS deal and how that uh, complicates things. 
It uh, complicates it in spades, Philip, because uh, while uh, nuclear reactors produce uh, intermediate-level waste, which is quite nasty and needs to be managed for very long periods of time, uh, nuclear submarines are fuelled by weapons-grade uranium uh, and as a result produces a much nastier and much more intractable set of waste products. And in the fine print of the AUKUS agreement, it says that Australia will be responsible for managing the waste if the nuclear submarines promised under AUKUS ever actually reach Australia. And I made the point in the article for the conversation that neither the US nor the UK, which have been operating nuclear submarines for 60 to 70 years, neither of them has yet worked out what to do with the intractable waste from nuclear submarines. In both cases, it's just being stockpiled uh, while governments scratch their head and try to figure out how to do uh, do something responsible with it. You, so you, use, the, you use the uh, metaphor of, the, of kicking the can down the road. Richard Miles, the Defence Minister, reckons it's not, not a problem that we need to solve until well into the 2050s. And uh, one of the problems with uh, nuclear issues generally is that we're dealing with uh, very long lifetimes, far longer than the time horizon of any politician. And uh, so there's an inevitable tendency to leave the problem to future generations. But it's, uh, in my view, quite irresponsible to be creating a problem uh, for which we don't have any obvious solution, uh, just uh, hoping like blazers that future generations will be cleverer than us and we'll figure out how to deal with it. Ian, I suddenly recall CSIRO coming up with uh, a method, uh, an idea that nuclear waste could be encased in sort of glass beads. Whatever became of that? Well, there's been various ideas. I think the best one was uh, an idea put forward by the late Professor Ted Ringwood, who was Professor of Geology at the Australian National University, who pointed out that uh, radioactive isotopes are immobilised for geological time in natural rocks. And his idea was that we should produce what he called a synthetic rock or synrock and embed the radioactive isotopes in that which would imprison them for geological time. And... Uh, Anstow and my colleagues at Griffith University actually tested Synrock and showed that it was orders of magnitude better at resisting leaching by groundwater than uh, glass beads. But uh, no nuclear authority anywhere in the world has taken up the idea of Synrock. Finland is currently building a, a deep underground repository, isn't it? It is indeed, and Finland is a model of the sort of process that should be adopted. They spent a very long time, decades, talking to the community about the fact that as a nation they were producing radioactive waste, which needed to be responsibly managed, and uh, they sought expressions of interest, they negotiated with communities, they found a community that was happy to accept a deep underground storage and they're now building it. And I've argued that that's a model of the sort of process that needs to be followed, one of community engagement rather than the uh, repeatedly failed model of deciding and trying to defend. Jess, we also need to consider how long the waste will be dangerous, don't we? As Ian points out, it's got a hell of a long life. What's, what's the scale how many thousands of years are we talking about? 
Well, that's probably a, a, probably a better question for Ian, but we're talking tens to hundreds of thousands of years, depending on the level of radio, radioactivity within that, that waste. And, and I think as Ian has alluded, high-level waste, no one really knows what to do with it. It's, we're talking about timescales that are beyond human imagination, really. And therefore, we're talking about issues of even communicating to people potentially thousands of generations into the future about the danger of these repositories that we're leaving behind. And we just don't really know. As historians, we, we talk about this. How do, how do we think in these kinds of timescales? Ian, is there any argument in favour of these small-scale nuclear plants? Do they employ better technology than the old ones? Well, the short answer is no. Uh, the longer answer is that they're basically just miniaturised versions of the old reactors. They have the same problems, the same uh, inevitable production of radioactive waste. And uh, economically, they are even worse because there are genuine economies of scale in building nuclear reactors. So one five times as large doesn't cost five times as much to build and operate. So the small modular reactors, which seem to be the the hymn of choice from Her Majesty's loyal opposition at the moment. Uh, they're not really small in Australian terms. They're quite large and they're not economic. In fact, uh, I did a back-of-the-envelope calculation after the head of Rolls-Royce proudly announced what he expected to be the, the asking price for the reactors they're building and it's something like eight times the cost of providing the equivalent amount of electricity from solar farms or large wind turbines. It just doesn't make any economic sense even if you're not worried about waste. Okay, do you see a way forward here and what would it look like? I'll put that to you first, Jess. So I think that I uh, am on the same page as Ian with this one in that I think the issue that governments of the past, especially in Australia, have had is this kind of decide and defend type consultation process or lack thereof. And I think if there is something to be done about our nuclear waste uh, and there does need to be something considering it is mounting and will continue to mount, there is a case for needing to consult communities over waste uh, due to the significant amount of apprehension and fear and anxiety that is associated with nuclear waste, um, in particular from Indigenous uh, and remote communities who uh, are quite remote repository is going to most importantly uh, impact. So I think public messaging really needs to be ironed out and people's fears really need to be taken seriously uh, rather than dismissed by those in the know as irrational or, or ill-informed. Ian, your advice? Uh, exactly the same. And in particular, there needs to be serious discussion with Indigenous communities because wherever we might want to store waste in Australia will be the land of one group or other of traditional owners. And the Indigenous people have never forgotten that the Menzies government allowed the British to test their nuclear weapons on their land, that people were harmed as a result. And it will take a long period of engagement to get uh, confidence from the traditional owners if we're going to establish a waste repository somewhere on their land. And meanwhile, Ian, how is the renewable sector going? Well, it's going very well. Uh, the, uh, the sovereign state of South Australia last year for 10 consecutive days produced all of its electricity from solar and wind with battery storage and exported its surplus to Victoria. The, uh, we need to speed it up 
and we also need to think about electrifying the other areas of um, fossil fuel use like transport, agriculture and manufacturing. And uh, the 43% target is uh, better than we had before, but it's still not ambitious enough if we want to take responsibly the task of slowing down climate change. Thanks, both of you, for coming on the program. Much appreciated. My guests have been Dr Jessica Irwin, that's U-R-W-I-N, and uh, Jessica is a postdoctoral research fellow in the ANU's Centre for Environmental History, and Ian Lowe is Emeritus Professor in the School of Environment and Science at Griffith and the author of Long Half-Life, The Nuclear Industry in Australia.